we have one of the, the best, best barbecue yeah. cultures in the world <laughs> without realizing that we actually have probably the worst barbecue <laughs> oh, culture come on, in the world. The worst. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams, my childhood, with your empty words. Roger, um, I've got to keep you honest. About? about. <laughs> well, we said some weeks ago that we were um, going to keep each other honest on our fat-burning uh, objectives, and we haven't done it for a few a few weeks. Ah, uh, oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how many um, how many pounds you put on after all those Christmas lunches you cooked. I won't lie, Christmas was a little bit rough, and I think the worst thing about Christmas is getting to an age where you can feel your pants getting tighter and how demoralizing <laughs> that can be. Um, in that feeling of wearing tight clothes, you know, like you just feel it's like someone telling you you're fat, but every minute of the day, um, like everyone has that one shirt or one pair of pants that's just a little bit too restrictive in their, in their <laughs> you know, in their wardrobe and, and wearing of it. You just hate wearing it. You hate wearing it. Um, so I, I did feel that a little bit. After Christmas, and um, I must admit, I put on so measuring after New Year's on the first, I had put on an extra two kilos, but since then, I've managed to take probably one and a half kilos back off. And I have actually been a bit ser- serious, actually, I've um, got a little bit more excited about some supplements, which is always a good sign in my. <laughs> in my mind when it comes to fat loss and um actually went to the gym at night a few days this week as well wow. so um, i'm doing pretty well i managed to get one and a half kilos of that two kilos i put on during the christmas period off already and um hopefully in the next week or two we'll start eating away at the frame oh yeah. that's good well congratulations i think um momentum is really important and whilst technically if we look at the totality of the <laughs> summer break, you're actually up rather than down. I think the fact that you have uh, dedicated the new you, I don't know if it's a New Year's resolution or whatever, you, you, however we want to frame it, but nonetheless, you've, you've allocated some part of your headspace to this this cause uh, and, and you've got the momentum of, of one, one and a half kilos, which is pretty pretty good achievement, I think is, uh, is good and... Uh, I'm assuming you got some Ozempic for um, for Christmas. <laughs> I wish I'd have to fight off some uh, some actual diabetic to get that. I, I've probably got a similar story to you. I think, uh, in fact, I deliberately didn't weigh myself as frequently as I could have, in the knowledge that I wasn't 100 percent sure if I wanted to wanted to see the results. <laughs> So for me, the um, actually Christmas wasn't an issue for me because like Christmas was just the start of like the break really for me. Uh, but it, it's the like the mm. couple of weeks. It's the period after Christmas where you, you know, you you've got free time and you know you're off cooking barbecues. It's, and it's quite unfair in, in the southern hemisphere, isn't it? That summer comes at the same time as Christmas and New Year's. Like in <laughs> in in other parts of the world, it's like winter. So 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. You're already, you're already in coats and things like that. You can worry about your summer shred later on. It's just kind of annoying because yeah, you're in the heart of summer and then you've got such a big festive time. You're never really going to stick to your diet then. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it really interrupts the whole period. So I, I don't know. I mean, you, you threw out a figure of two kilos put on. I, I don't know what my figure was. I probably put on, I would say probably between one and two kilos, but similar to you. Or actually, you know what? I don't even know if I did put on one or two kilos. It just it maybe just mentally I th- think that I have. But it's all calories I, in those um, uh, <laughs> LD Caesar salads. Yeah. It's the croutons. <laughs> actually, you know what? I, I'm going to call it. I'm going to say I actually probably didn't put on any weight, but I think what probably happened is I stopped losing weight. So yeah. I was probably edging around like a weight loss sort of like a equilibrium or whatever but like i guess anyway to cut to the chase i'm now like today i i weighed in and i'm i'm at a, a low so even though the momentum has slowed down a bit because of you know christmas new year all of that like i'm at the end of it i'm lower than i've been the whole time so that's oh, good. wow so but not by much right just like a little bit to me this is actually um, and I have I have had competing priorities and all sorts of things, but I must say that thinking back on um, this diet challenge, it's been really hard for me, and um, and I think it's just because the whole being a stay at home parent and actually just having really low mental resilience when it comes to pleasure that you can control on tap, which is essentially you know food, and um, yeah, I've just found myself really getting obsessed by food this time around and, and finding it really hard to have that that discipline, which is not something that I experience as much when I've done this before. So the thing you've got to remember is that it's okay to have the French toast, but you just have to use margarine instead of butter. <laughs> I, um, I must say that uh, I've been going through a lot of cafe-style um, raisin toast and Lurpak spreadable. And the amount that uh, the, the pace at which that I'm going through low pack spreadable tubs is uh, very humbling. But yeah, I, I... and very expensive too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I always remember um, margarine, the the flavorless, or almost the equivalent of just putting some flavorless oil on your bread. Um, that 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 that's like the taste of my childhood, and <laughs> I, I I just. I, like I, I can't think like to me if there's anything that like quintessentially sums up boomer food, it's margarine. What are your what's your what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, my, my seared memory or crystallized memory of margarine actually goes back to when I first visited my relatives in um, San Diego in America when I was young, and it was the first time I coincidentally I was introduced to Costco, and when we went there they they brought back something resembling a paint tin sized uh you know portion of i can't believe it's not butter which was the very popular kind of like butter alternative essentially margarine but it was such an american mentality so when they popped the lid on that bad boy they would be like don't worry you can put as much of this stuff on as you want so they would literally (laughs) like put it like they would cake it on like frosting on a cupcake and i like i remember them serving up this like hot cross bun and it literally had the ratio of a frosted cupcake of this can't believe it's not butter on it. And let me tell you, I could believe it wasn't butter. <laughs> it, was, it was just <laughs> everything you're talking about, this really oily, waxy substance that had this like um, 
fake. Yeah, it just it was just, it was awful, right? Like you're not fooling anyone, but you're making up for it. And um, Anthony Bourdain always goes into this thing where he's like, it's such a human behavior to make something a little bit shit just so you can have 10% more of it. <laughs> it's just like such a human behavior um, and the worst parts of human behavior in my opinion. <laughs> so today we're touching on the um, the different, shall we say, food uh, food cultures of the generations. And um, we've, we've had a chat about boomers before and uh, not to pick on, on boomers because I'm sure some of this bleeds into Gen X yeah. uh, as well. But they're definitely and and sorry, just as an aside, I'm sure um what's the what's the generation that'll come after us? They'll they'll be um Z's <laughs> Z Z's. Z's or whatever. That they'll be um making similar observations about us before too long. This is gonna be one of those episodes where um I'm gonna to have to approach this a little bit differently because obviously I come from uh an Asian heritage and an immigrant heritage. So obviously um uh, what we're looking for here is true white Australian boomer food. Um, and luckily, being the true um, banana that I am, yellow on the outside, white on the inside, I have oodles of, uh, of experience to draw from from my um, Western friends, uh, some ex-partners as well, which will uh, rename, <laughs> remain nameless. So, uh, yeah. And look, there's just so many places to start when it comes to boomer food and i actually think you know thinking about this whole topic i actually vividly remember being at one of my friend's houses and they had this kind of like you know those old school bookcases that used to be proudly displayed behind the couch in the tv room of most people's houses they had this kind of whole row of cookbooks and it was the mum's cookbooks and they pretty much had every woman's weekly <laughs> edition of the cookbook and there was one that was like very prominent and it was the 1970s like best of microwave and basically it was this whole cookbook <laughs> this woman's weekly cookbook that was dedicated to microwaves and um oh let me tell you this thing had like you know yeah. how to cook an how to cook an apricot chicken like a whole chicken in the microwave like by putting it in a corningware dish and and you know zapping it in the microwave for like an hour or something and all these like hideous kind of like stroganoff dishes and all this kind of stuff and it just got me thinking is like australia in terms of cuisine right like before there was modern australian there was this weird hangover from like english cooking and really like the simplicity and the harshness of the australian kind of land and i think that we, the food culture is a really a, an interesting evolution, and I think some of it holds back, you know, harks back into that kind of. Does Australia really have a, a cuisine culture, right? Like it's it's had to come together quite rapidly to kick off some of the craziness of like English peasant food and evolve into something more modern. I don't know what was your childhood memories of the food that you had. Uh, well, I'm not going to take the bait on on my childhood memories because oh. I think that's uh, <laughs> uh, well. We might get there. We might get there later. But I maybe just to riff on, um, you know, you've raised more like what are the explanations for for it? And I think to to be very very fair on on boomers, I think we have to acknowledge a couple of things. One is that this is like the post war generation, so. This is a generation that grew up in an environment where you're actually probably lucky to have nutritious food on the table, let alone that it tastes good, right? And, you know, because we're talking, well, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what 
the case was in Australia at the time. But I mean, I know my dad grew up like with rations, right? Post-war rations. So you have your ration card and you get this much flour or whatever. So people were literally trying to put food on the table when my parents were were growing up, right? So the idea that you go from that to this hyper pretentious food culture is it's just yeah, it's, it's almost like a little bit kind of come on, like stop having a wank, you know, kind of thing, right? <laughs> it's a it's a soft landing, Andy, but I don't buy it because um, some of the best food cultures do come from peasant peasant cultures. Just again, just to be defend boomers for a little bit before we um we get stuck into them we probably don't appreciate just how much they innovated so I, I like i don't think we would give them credit for what they inherited versus what they left in terms of food culture so they inherited in terms of from their parents really if we think it's bad what we inherited like wait till you see what they inherited and i would even go so far as to say that like the gap between what they inherited versus what they, what they've left to us is they've actually made a lot more progress like even something fundamentally like pizza pizza probably wasn't popularized in Australia until the boomers popularized it or it, it came with with the generation of the boomers so now I think we should get stuck into some of these examples in a second but I think just before we do I think it is worth giving some context that like yeah they might have brought a shit pizza but they brought us pizza. So there's there's some things. Are you like saying that, that, a, that a white boomer brought us pizza? <laughs> well Because I'm pretty sure it was the, the boomer generation. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but I mean the generation, right? Including the immigrant component of of the generation, but maybe more particularly the boomers that had sufficient demand for pizza such that it was viable for the Italian community to set up pizza restaurants, right? Or for it to be brought from America, you know, if it's an Americanized version that that got brought here or, you know, that, that with their paychecks, they went out and purchased pizza from these places such that we could actually have in much the same way as like, if I appreciate going to like a really ornate dumpling restaurant and, and I have a taste for good quality yeah. dumplings, it's not me All right. in my generation innovating dumplings, it's just me knowing the difference between a good dumpling and a bad dumpling, oh, right? Before before we move off this uh, this soft landing, which I, I'm on board with, I think there's definitely, I, I need to be challenged on, on this, definitely. Can you seriously, though, name one dish or, cuisine, or part of a cuisine that's been innovated by a white boomer? Because it's kind of my point that there's this void of Australian cooking, like food culture. Everything that is is... That there's nothing there, even even something like the barbecue, which is probably like the closest that you could, like the evolution of the barbecue. The Australian barbecue has been pulled, dragged, kicking and screaming into modernity by looking at other barbecue cultures. All right, well, well but let's let's get to these kind of things, and we'll talk through these specific. But case isn't, studies, isn't the fact but... that we can't think of one like quite an indictment? I think that's a question like destined to fail, no matter like what the permutation of it is, right? Because, like, if, if by white boomer culture, what we mean is like Australian culture, yeah. right? We we don't really have like our food culture is not characterized as taking a dish and like inventing a dish and everyone getting on board to perfect it, and then ev- everyone's like on the same page that yeah, this is the dish we're going to like make famous in Australia. Like that's not that was never going to happen. It was always going to be okay. Well, we have a pretty low bar. 
here in Australia, we've only got this the, these very mundane foods already here. We've got this like wealth of fantastic foods from around the world, and and we're going to import them, right? We're going to bring them here. Like it was always going to be that. The the forces were always going to be to to do that. And like if we think of like say Italy, right, Italian food culture. The the only reason there's such fantastic pasta, pizza, you know, those sorts of dishes in Italy is because there there was hundreds of years of, you know, perfecting it, like because those were the only dishes that they made on a regular basis. And so they perfected them. But they, you know, they didn't have much else. But we weren't going to develop in that way because, you know, we live now in a globalized economy. You know, food culture is global now. So it was only the forces of, of, of bringing foods in was always going to be the focus. And it was, it was that, that was the focus of the boomers. So they, it was for them to bring it, to bring it in. And then you have, then if you want to answer then the question, well, what did they innovate? It, it, the, the results are more, well, you probably have some, you know, boomer, boomer white chefs or whatever, who would take some of the international influences and bring them together at, in these new kind of fusion sort of style dishes. But they weren't going to be things that everyone was going to start emulating. There would be uh, they're, they're the special dishes at one particular restaurant in a, a modern Australian restaurant. And frankly speaking, like I think if we're talking about at least the, the you know the restaurant scene we have here in Australia now, I think it is very very good. It's very strong. All right, I'm going to give a special shout out, which is going to make me eat my words, and probably the most Australian innovation of all, and very relevant. Rest in peace, Bill Granger. Um, he's not a boomer, though. Is nineteen. He? I just looked it up. Nineteen sixty-nine. <laughs> so nineteen sixty-nine is boomer, right? No, I don't think so. I reckon that's Gen X. It's surely not. I'm pretty sure we, we had a whole generations thing. Can we just get that right? If um, that's it, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to call it and say Gen X. But if it is boomer, then definitely one of the. Um... Oh, he's all okay. He's almost a boomer. It's nineteen sixty-four. Is a cutoff? <laughs> almost a boomer. Yeah, he's almost. Yeah, but inspired by boomer culture, right? Oh, all right. Well, and mentored by boomers. And I think that. When I do think something that's uniquely Australian, I think of actually brunch culture. So going into a beautiful cafe for breakfast and having your milk-based, your fine milk-based coffees, your flat whites and things like that. And he really popularized this idea of avocado on toast and like a really incredible celebrated brunch. And so he's recently passed away from, from cancer. Uh, and he trailblazed a lot of that kind of stuff. So big call out to Bill Granger, not actually, you know, by the letter of the law, a boomer, but very, very close to being a boomer. And um, I will say that you know, I'll give it to him that actually avocado and toast and milk-based coffees and that cafe brunch culture, I think, isn't an Australian um, success story. It, it is, but um, that's an example, again, I think of like a fusion food concept, right? Because like, Adding the coriander to the avocado on toast, that's a bold move for someone who doesn't understand, who would not have been exposed to like Asian influences, for example. Yeah. And I think that's an example of the type of innovation that we have had in Australia across a whole range of dishes. That was one, like avocado on toast was popularized uh, and, and it was copied and everyone, you know, others made it and, and had their crack at it. But um, there would be dishes like that where they, Bring a bit of the, a, a bit of sort of European, a bit of Asian, a bit of bloody. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a good example though, because that specific dish shows a big divide around the generations. Boomers reject the smashed avo. But the um, but the Bill Granger 
avocado on toast is not smashed. It's it's actually cut into chunks, right? It's, well, it's... let me tell you what they reject, and maybe we can start to, to get into it. <laughs> they reject the concept that you are so privileged that you're willing to go out and pay money for someone to slice an avocado on a piece of sour, sourdough bread and pay good money for it. So I think this idea around the value of what a meal is. Let, let's go through the categories where I think boomers, I think, have some different perspectives on. And I think we can do, we'll start with boomer breakfast because we're already here. <laughs> and then and then I think we, we should go through a few other um, areas. So, But let's start with breakfast. So for me, the quintessential boomer breakfast, it, it comes out of a cardboard box, right? <laughs> it's... Breakfast is not something you consume by going to the local cafe. Even on the weekend or a special occasion, you get your, you know, Kellogg's, whatever your, mm. you know, you know, brand is, and you put some milk, probably the low fat variety, just to be healthy. And um, it's that every single day, and there's no variety because you because you buy them in the big packets. Like you you can't have variety, right? Because you've only, <laughs> <laughs> your your pantry would be filled with can, too many can, different things. Can you think right? of anything that would enrage a boomer dad more than a kid wanting to buy those little like sample packs of the, of the cereals? <laughs> that would just like, no, no, like that's not happening, right? Like we're well, not see, at some but, hotel, right? Like we're not that, it's not happening. Well, but that's exactly, but, the, but the, okay, let's, let's extend the analogy further, right? You said we're not at some fancy hotel, right? That would be breakfast in a fancy hotel, like a box of ce- a, a box of cereal, like <laughs> the continental, <laughs> <laughs> like you know what I mean. Oh, but at I least mean, they have the, get, little, yeah. the little kind of dispensers that make you think you're at the candy store, and you can get a little bit of each thing. Oh no, no, some of them had, some of them were the boxes, like <laughs> you know. But okay, like let's just for a minute acknowledge the utility of this breakfast because I'm sure. Many people still have this breakfast, including of our generation, right? It's a it's a meal, it's easy, it's really cheap, yeah, and it's quick, and there's a lot of benefits to to this meal, right? I acknowledge the benefits. What I I want to say really that I'm disappointed in is that cereal, boxed cereal, and I include wheat bix into this category, which is some kind of Australian darling of what it means to be healthy and a true Australian. I think that it's the biggest kind of like exercise in corporate marketing that's hit, that's really, really penetrated lifestyles, the Australian culture, right? Like, and I, and I really think that it's disappointing that it's just, it's all the kind of lobby of all the food lobbies that have said that, you know, this cereal, this is what you need to do to be a productive human being. Feed this shit to your kids, this kind of like highly processed, you know, puffed wheat, uh, to your kids, right? And if they if you don't give it to them, you're a bad parent. They're not going to be able to concentrate in school. To the point where, like, there are, I know people that no matter where they are in the world, if they don't get their wheat bix, they feel off, right? That's how like trained they are to this idea of like, I'm virtuous. I start my day off with a really like you know virtuous meal of of puffed wheat bricks. You know, like a good little, <laughs> a good little communist having my little puffed wheat rations, right? Almost, and and like the insidiousness of the marketing, like where you've got um, wallabies, ex wallabies, and stuff. George Gregan saying, "I eat nine wheat picks. How many do you do?" Like all this kind of like horrible, uh, and it's like, why does it work on us? Why does it work, right? Like, and and I, I get that, you know, and and to a degree, it works on me too. Not for cereal, but I'm Asian. I should be able to have like. Kingdo Pai Kwa and like, you know, f- 
fur for breakfast like the rest of Asian countries and have this glorious celebration of of your first meal. But I still, I'm the same way. Like if I want, what I want out of my breakfast is a very specific palette of carbs, like some kind of like pastry or like some kind of toast, some good quality toast, maybe, you know, eggs or something like that and bacon, but it's a very specific cuisine. And if I don't have it, I feel, I don't feel right. So it's even worked on me in some ways. Mm. So what did you have growing up? All right, here we go. So on an exotic Asian day, it could get (laughs) as wild as essentially like this dish where they like essentially beat raw eggs under like slight heat to make this kind of goopy egg mixture, which resembles what you know, Neo eats in the, when he wakes up from the Matrix, which was horrible, to um, just standard toast. So I think the majority of my breakfasts were toast and some kind of spread, and sometimes it got a bit more freaky Asian. Uh, but usually it was kind of toast. Now, that's not to say that the marketing didn't work on me as a kid, especially someone who's trying to be Australian. I had cravings for all the usual suspects of, you know, Cocoa Pops and you know, honey bites and all the crunchy nuts, like, and I still love it. Like I still love Nutrigrain and, and, but I recognize it for what it is like a marketing spin, some breakfast candy that, you know, you, you're indulging in. It's not something to have every day. They're desserts. They're closer to a dessert than a yeah, hearty breakfast. But, but Nutrigrain is still marketed as Iron Man food, right? Like it's still, <laughs> yeah. and there's still people that think there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think as well, if we're talking about like boomer, the boomer angle here i think for me it's more that it's not so much that they actually that was like their breakfast their typical breakfast because it still probably is today for for even our generation but it's probably more the the sheer sort of disdain for like (laughs) the notion of like that you have something a bit better than that so the the notion that you would go to a cafe and spend as, as you said 20 bucks on avocado and toast, right? Growing up, I actually had like similarly had little waves of, oh, I would have start having cereal, then I'd get sick of it, and then yeah. I'd have toast, and then I'd get sick of that, and then you try, you know. But for me now, like as an adult, I'm, well, I'm obviously on a one meal a day diet now, so I'm not having any breakfast. But even so, even regularly, I would never have the things we've just talked about. I would never, I, I just, I cannot think of anything worse than starting my day with soggy cereal or shitty toast, right? So I just don't have it at all. I would never have that. And then the only way I would have breakfast is if it's a proper cooked breakfast. So And and so it means that either, like, you you know, if you go to a cafe, you're probably not going to do that every day because that's way too expensive. Um, So it means for me in practice, I'm either not having breakfast at all or if I am having breakfast, it's a good breakfast. All right. Let's um, pivot a little bit now to pizza. Um, we, we talked a little bit about pizza before, and there's two kind of things, aspects of this that I want to bring up. Let Okay, just to call spade a spade, boomers generally did not grow up or did not experience ever good quality pizza, and and they wouldn't even know it if it, if it like, bit them on the bum, right? So they could be given, like, like authentic, you know, what's the association Neapolitan, like, yeah, you know, whatever, whatever the, you know, the Italian, they could be given that pizza and, and would come and they'd complain about it because it's like, oh, there's not many toppings on this pizza. And I vividly have a memory of, of being uh, a 12 year old in Italy and um, being with my dad 
And um, if he's listening to this, he'll probably laugh at it because we we were in Italy and we did order. We went to a, a re, you know a restaurant in 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 Rome actually. Yeah, we ordered a pizza. Now I can't picture it in my mind, but I just remember at the time just the outrage that this pizza is. Oh, it's just like some dough with like a couple of lumps of cheese on it, like because the reference point was like these monstrosity of pizzas that you you know would would have gotten in Australia at the time, whereas this was actually probably genuinely like an authentic pizza, and yeah, I, I, <laughs> so that's one one sort of one sort of point. But like um, I saw on social media today or yesterday, because I'm like part of this like local community Facebook group with all these boomers that um, that that are part of the the group, and they they posted their photo right of oh such an amazing pizza restaurant and like they're you know trying to shout out the local pizza restaurant oh just such a best pizzas best pizzas here, <laughs> and and they showed this photo right and it's this first of all like the pizza. Like base the cr- the crust. I mean, and when we say base, like that Im- that implies like it's this pre cooked thing that they then slap the <laughs> ingredients on. But it was like you know the dough or whatever you, you want to call it with way too many different ingredients. But then but then like the quintessential sign of like a boomer pizza for me, or like especially like a gourmet sense of like a boomer sense of gourmet, is where they've squirted some sauce on it in a in a swirl oh, in a yeah. spiral. <laughs> oh it's authentic it's it's authentic uh gourmet pizza and that is like as good as it gets for you know this is something i've always wondered a little bit right because there's obviously different tiers of pizza in australia and you know in most western countries you have your pizza hut and Domino's, like your fast food pizza right and they, they hold a special place in the hearts of many australians right because that's the kind of movie night pizza right and and there's a place for that there always will be a place for that and um, even for, I know for my dad, there was a, uh, probably a, almost like a 10-year window when we were growing up where there was this battle royale between Pizza Hut and Domino's. They were literally across the road from each other and they would have these billboards and they would have price wars. And I think at the height of the price wars in the late 90s, you could get a family-sized pizza for two ninety nine, right? Because they were just trying to undercut each other to drive each other out of business. It was this huge arms race. And he still talks about that to this day it still stings whenever like we have a movie night with the kids and he's like you paid 10.99 for a family <laughs> back remember when remember that time when we bought the pizza for 2.99 do you remember it and i'm like yes i remember it <laughs> so it was a special place right and it's this kind of like this idea of cheap sustenance right feeding a lot of people easily that it still falls on the shoulders of pizza think of every time you have like a late night work dinner or something, or you just need food quickly for a lot of people. Pizza is the king, right? So, okay, you've got that pizza right there. And I think that will always hold a special place and that's its own thing. But what I really have a question with when it comes to boomers, I think that when you think of suburban living, right? And I often think of boomers in that setting. You always have the local Italian restaurant, right? And I think the one near us, shout out Scoozies or whatever, whatever it was for a long time. These kind of little Italian mum and pop Italian restaurants that that boomers they just get endeared, like really like emotionally attached to, and they make this weird Frankenstein version of pizza that is not Pizza Hut anymore, but it's definitely like it's the somehow it's still somehow even further away from authentic <laughs> Italian pizza, and they kind of it just like ends up being this kind of weird cross between focaccia 
just stacked with like lots of toppings and, and different things and strange combinations. And whenever I ask like a boomer or the people that I grew up with or, or now know what their favorite pizza is, they always talk about their local Italian restaurant. And they're always run by like non-Italians and stuff like that. And they just do all the usual, usual suspects around pasta and pizza and things. But it just got me wondering, like, are these restaurants run by boomers for boomers or are they just catering to the Western palate? when it comes to pizza. And that's the thing that I don't really know um, because if it is them trying to match the market, given long enough, like you said, that could become its own style of Australian pizza. But I'm not sure it is. <laughs> I'm not sure it is. I have similar experiences on the high end. So I remember actually there was probably about 10 years ago, there was this really famous Italian pizzeria place that came to Sydney. And I was really, it was, it was quite close to where I was living at the time. And I was really kind of like, excited to take my friends there and I was always just so disappointed that people didn't love it in the same way I loved it and the common thing would be oh yeah it's kind of soggy in the middle you know like that would always be a thing where it's just like no I don't really I like my pizzas crispy and part of me like understood what they meant but it was just like such a slap in the face that when you show someone like the truest form of something the most authentic form that has been celebrated and they don't like it it's a bit like um you know making like a properly formed like coffee they go, oh, I prefer Nescafe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or if they want to be fancy, yeah, what's the, um, I like my um, Nespresso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was just used to be so disappointed by that. And then it just, you can't force these things, right? And I actually strongly believe that the spirit of pizza should be really inclusive. And I think, you know, with food critics and food kind of journalism, right, uh, the prominence of in different pizza is so mature as a cuisine that it has sprouted its own subcultures now being like the ones in america like getting a, a brooklyn slice or something like that right or what do they call it pie over there which i never really understood right? why is it called a pie uh, do, do, do you know what i understand that's oh, just it's just um new york sort of slang right yeah but you know what i mean like so they, they've, they've become their own thing and um you know good pizza is good pizza I remember there used to be one around us called, I don't even know if they still have it, called Gourmet Pizza Kitchen, GPK. Oh, I remember. <laughs> and I remember for a brief period really liking it. I'm like, I know it's not pizza, but they can make me a hoisin duck pizza. And it actually tastes pretty good. <laughs> and then this is kind of like I had this brief window into thinking, okay, this is something new. It's done to a fairly good quality. It's obviously not authentic. And I like it. Am I the boomer? Hoisin duck pizza is such a like a 2000 thing like <laughs> <laughs> i know i know but it's that kind of thing of right like embracing something that's different it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be authentic all the time and i think that's where the italians actually go wrong they hold on to tradition in like in spite of all the different changes that they could be doing for innovation Let, let's take the pizza hut and domino's example in here in australia like that's that's akin to like mcdonald's mechanizing hamburger production right it's it's very much a what is the way to like make something people can eat that as cheaply that that doesn't go wrong because like, we've got like 15 year olds making it kind of thing i'm still disappointed though when have you, have you looked at the line recently like seeing them make the pizzas i'm actually very oh, disappointed it's... that it's not more advanced than it is it's still at the heart of it just like well spring it's just yeah, sprinkling, sprinkling shit not, yeah. like then okay so that's that level and like i'm totally okay with that like that's there's a place for that but then we get to the the as you say like the local italian place and, and you're totally right everyone's like oh they're, they're the best yeah, pizzas it's here. always the best and you'll get some sort of i don't know like um 
it, it, it might be unique in some ways. It might have unique ingredients. It might be some weird combination or whatever. Probably the utility of it is that it's different to Pizza Hut and Domino's. Like it's, it's not so much even that it's better. It might be better, but in objectively speaking, but that's not why it's revered in that community. It's revered in that community because it is just different, right? It's also a night out. It's a BYO night out. Well, but sometimes it's like they get them for takeaway too. But true, yeah, true. But but they're really quite ordinary pizzas, right? Like, yeah. and and I, okay, let, let's actually just take a step back here when we're talking about like pizza production, right? The the core thing to get right is 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 the dough and the base, right? Now there's and there's lots of different ways of 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 what success looks like, but these places ain't achieving it, right? They've yeah. got these very mediocre unremarkable and i think that people fundamentally disagree with you i i agree with you but i think they're like no the base is just a vehicle for the toppings <laughs> it's just the thing to put, put the shirt more on toppings top, right? on it Look, and just yeah, it's yeah. getting soggy you just put one of those little toadstool things to keep the box up <laughs> <laughs> but the, like i guess the thing is when so like okay so take italian pizza right i think where australia goes wrong and australian boomers go wrong is the the idea that you pursue purity against like some Italian notion of like what a pizza is? Again, like I agree with what you said. That that's probably like because this. As an aside, pizza tastes good no matter what it's. It's yeah. like it's hard it to good make when it's bad cold. pizza, and that's why it's so popular. Like because it's just even like Pizza Hut and Domino's taste good. Like it's yeah. it's 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 hard to make pizza taste bad, right? So it's all of this stuff that we're talking about tastes good and it works. But the question is, is it as good as it could be? And and so I guess with like a lot of these, like let's say moving or departing from like the Italian notion of perfection, like in the US, they've done that. Like and and they have like a whole thing that is like equally as like the culture around like a New York slice, for example. Yeah. Increasingly now there's a lot more places that do like more authentic style, like Neapolitan style pizza here in Australia now, but we haven't that doesn't seem to have like come like that here in terms of like the New York style yeah. pizza here. And it, and actually like, it's amazing. Like New York pizza is like a cheese pizza. And, and I'm surprised it hasn't taken off. Cause it's like, the whole thing is like three bucks for a, there's not, for a massive There's not slice enough of foot traffic, pizza. I think that's the problem. And the closest thing we have is the magic kebab when everyone's drunk, they do the similar thing. Right. But like, there's a whole culture around, um, the three dollar slice, right? And actually, funnily enough, in New York, it's I think you can get it for two dollars um, a slice of pizza. And like when I say a slice of pizza, it's big. Uh, we're not talking about one slice of your Domino's style cheese pizza. Like one of these slices is the equivalent of probably half a half a pizza, <laughs> you know, like um, from from Domino's, and uh, and it's and it tastes bloody good. But I did notice that, like, so in, in New York, you could get a cheese slice for for as I think as low as a dollar ninety nine. This is US dollars, though, so it's oh, more cost price. But then, funnily enough, in other parts of the US, like say Los Angeles, that same slice from even the same pizza chain would be like six dollars. So that's uh, carbon tax. It comes back to the whole value for money with boomers, right? Tying it back to boomers, they see an authentic Nepalese pizza. And it's literally got like little puddles of melted mozzarella and one or two, you know, basil leaves on it. And they're like, you can't be telling me that this costs more to make than the meat lover's pizza that I got with the stuffed crust. But somehow it's like double the price. And I get that. I do get that. Like intrinsically, you're like, well, there's less food ingredients that are going into this. But what you don't see is obviously they've got a wood-fired 
you know oven back there they've got skills to make it the dough's been fermenting for you know 48 hours we've got people from uh shipped in from napoli that don't even speak english like working the thing like you know there's there's all this stuff that they don't appreciate yeah uh that and that's it that's it precisely and it's it's the um it's fill a hole something to fill yeah, my, a hole my dad my dad feels <laughs> the same way he he you cannot take him to this place because he'll complain like there's just nothing on it right and he'll be, you know, he'll be thinking, I'm going I'm to go hungry. But yeah, I mean, you've heard that line about why pizza and sex are the same, right? Pizza and sex are the same because they say that even when the pizza's bad, it's still pretty good. All right. On that note, let's go to dining experiences, fine dining. <laughs> once, or t- once or twice, I've, oh, I, I, I'm not sure if I've ever explicitly sort of invited my parents to like almost like a, a double date kind of thing, you know. Oh, let's go out together, <laughs> to, and we'll go. Well, not a double date. That's not the right the, the right term framing. But like, you know, you can you imagine like, anything more jarring than your dad being your wingman? <laughs> like seriously, <laughs> I don't mean like a double Tinder date or something. Like, I mean, like you we're know, crossed you, over you go into out. Like uncanny universe now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I mean, you go out with as a, a group of four, like to a restaurant, or like a Thai restaurant, right, with your family, right? But like. Yeah, that is the quintessential, yeah. I think, uh, grown-up kids <laughs> kind of dinner date with your parents, going to a Thai yeah, restaurant. Uh, but but what you what I've I would love to be able to say to them, would you like to go to this this place? And then the place that I'm thinking of is like a place which is notable as being a renowned restaurant. It might have a hat, like a couple of hat, a hat or two hats. If it's you know in Australia that we have these ratings equivalent to sort of the Michelin Guide, it might not necessarily be expensive but it's probably more going to be more expensive than the type place it might be yeah you know an investment conceptually it's almost the equivalent of like buying a ticket to the theater and seeing a show except that instead of seeing a show you're eating food but you're eating like really good quality food and it's an experience right more so than something to fill a hole i just know that that's not gonna flow and it's it's the same as the cafe thing right not but not paying for avocado and toast it's like hatred for fine dining. All right. Let me let me dish. All right. It's my turn on my parents. Okay. So when it comes to Asian parents, there is a frugality or kind of Asian cheapness <laughs> that comes with the territory, right? As a modern kind of like Asian Australian, right? You're constantly having this filter where no matter what you purchase in this world, you're always giving a 30 to 40% reduction when you talk about it to your parents so that they will be proud of you that you either got it on sale or you're not wasting money. This whole system of lies and discounts breaks down when you're at the restaurant with them because they can see the menu and they can see the prices next to each item. And especially for my dad, this just ruins the experience. He can't possibly like this food at that price. <laughs> you know? And it kind of then ruins the experience for everyone because he's going on about the price and how if we were, and this, this actually happens exclusively, not exclusively, but especially outside of Asian cuisine. So, and a shout out to, to kind of Caucasian culture, food culture, they are more willing to try different cuisines than ethnic minorities in a lot of ways. Um, or at least they seem happier when they do it. <laughs> and this is because when my dad's not eating Asian food, he knows he can get for a certain price for a certain quality. You know, he's like a rabid animal looking at, like he becomes a rabid accountant looking at all the different ways that we're getting fucked over. And so it makes it like quite a stressful situation when it comes to this stuff. But 
at the same time, he'd be happy to pay good money for like an Asian banquet or something that he knows is good quality. And I think there's just this kind of like racism when it comes to other cultures' foods, to be honest, especially the Japanese, never more extreme than Japanese food. So if you think about kind of like more classic Cantonese culture and food culture, you get big, you know, you get big dishes that pride themselves on big servings and like the richness of the food and everything's quite opulent. And then you move to Japanese and everything is so minimalistic. You hardly get any food. Sushi is super expensive. You hardly get anything. They often complain they're leaving hungry and all this kind of stuff. It's just too hard. It's too hard to do it. And so <laughs> you don't. Um, so look, it's, it's tough with Asian parents sometimes. Um, but as each kind of year goes by, they get more and more, you know, modernized, but, uh, uh, this is a universal experience for, um, Asian parents that is they're quite hard to take to even Thai food, even Thai food. They're just like, we could be eating Cantonese food right now. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is, uh, this is a thing that people don't realize that you'd, you'd, you'd ex expect immigrants to be more adventurous with their food they're not okay so i'm just trying to think like how to break this one down like how are like boomers like quintessentially different to our generation and i think some of what like you've described and what i've experienced there's this value for money thing right yeah and i do think like so we've had conversations in previous episodes about housing and how oh you know these filthy rich boomers with their houses that they bought for like a hundred thousand dollars or whatever that are now worth millions like oh they're ripping us all off i think this is like a real world example of like that actually boomers generally lived quite economically through yeah. quite tough circumstances and that training that they had their whole lives to know you don't like spring out on like two hundred dollars a head kind of restaurants like yeah. who, who graduated that's kind of a no-no because like of course it's a no-no right yeah even for a special occasion and the whole byo thing oh that's good like we can have like a nice night out at a restaurant and we bring our own wine and we save some money like what's wrong with that like that's totally like responsible cheap and cheerful cheap and cheerful and like what's wrong with like going to a thai restaurant like it's cheap and it's tastes delicious and it's like it's so good like why would you spend more than that right yeah and I think this is where we, you know, partially like need to acknowledge our privilege in that if you can kind of genuinely consider as almost equivalent to traveling the world, like travel all the best restaurants in the place you live, like if that's your mindset, you're very privileged. And, well, you know, and, and, and even our generation, that's not on the cards, right? That's not a possibility, right? Well, I think, you know, I brought up the other day of um, Teacher Will you know, having to catch up with Teacher Will and kind of saying to us at that RSL that we're being a bit pretentious. And I wonder whether it's some of that as well, right? Like we, it's not so much that we can't enjoy those other things, but there's a, there's a certain kind of like striving for quality that maybe has changed. Because look, I mean, the quality of food, let, let's like strip away generations. The quality of food has been lifted, right? In our lifetime, you used to go out to just a normal middle-class cafe and you would get a dry focaccia with like some sun-dried tomato dripped on top of it and that was like sold as like a, a nice lunch, right? That wasn't too long ago and now we're getting like a whole world of delights 
uh, cafes everywhere. Just like the standard has been lifted for everyone, right? And I think it's a a natural thing. And and, and I, I think something that we haven't discussed here is that our generation actually loves to cook, right? Like I think that when I think of myself too, like I we have self-educated this kind of boom in this like Jamie Oliver cooking shows and all this kind of stuff has really hit home for, for our generation. And when you are someone who's excited about learning how to cook and this explosion of like master chef and celebration of chefs and, and like idolization in some ways of them, it makes you a bit pretentious about food and makes you have a high expectation. And I don't think that was part of the culture. I think back in the boomers period, it was seen as like the woman's job to put food on the table, right? Make dinner. Mums had to make dinner. Dads had to go and earn. Uh, and that was changing, obviously. Dads still cleaned up or whatever. But it wasn't like a part of a man's job to kind of get excited about how to cook a pizza. Or the closest thing they had was the barbecue, you know? And even, even then they did that shit. You know, like, I think that's part of what's driven the change as well, in my mind, that we love to cook. I mean, you're going through it right now, this like making different pizza doughs and stuff like that. That just wouldn't be something I think that most boomers would be interested in en masse. And now I think there is a general uplift of, of cooking culture, right? And that corresponds to expectations of food. If you can make food better for yourself than you can get in a lot of restaurants, then you are going to push the standard of food up, right? Your anecdote before about the microwave cookbook, I think, seals the deal, right? The idea of convenience and... and Efficiency. It, <laughs> I, I think on a gendered basis, definitely your comment there is right. So about men are now far more interested in cooking, I think, than generations gone by. Yeah. And quite, it's very common for, I think, men to almost, it's a hobby almost. Yeah. And I think that's because I think culturally, like let's say 50 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever, it almost would have been not. Uh, it's a stigma, like, right? Like, yeah, like a, a, a emasculating thing to do, right? Especially so, if you made things like you made cupcakes, right? Like if a man made yeah, cupcakes, yeah, yeah. you're probably a cupcake yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's changed. But I don't think it's true for women. Though. There's always been like that same, in, and maybe if anything, it's rev it's flipped, right? It's it definitely now, has flipped. <laughs> because like you mentioned uh, an episode or two ago around um, the notion of, what was it, women's dinner or something? Um, <laughs> girl dinner. Female girl dinner. I mean, there's a reason those like women's weekly cookbooks were so popular because like women were buying them, right? They they wanted to, and, and like, frankly, they probably did have the time to do it because they were working, they, they were stay-at-home moms or whatever. They didn't have to go to work and they had time to spend all day cooking certain meals. Maybe that's why blokes weren't into cooking because their wives were really good at it. And I do think as well, like I've seen probably like for me quintessentially like a 70s kind of cookbook. They're really into like French cuisine and stuff yeah. like that. And at that time, like they would have all these really horrible dishes and stuff, but <laughs> they did seem to be quite sophisticated, like not sophisticated in taste, but sophisticated in terms of effort. And like, yeah, they had to do a lot of different stages to the, to the dish. Like uh, and tomato so consomme, yeah. like was a great example of that, right? <laughs> like it was, a, it was, it was always in... Those Donahay, it's not Donahay, but uh, Women's Weekly books, right? And it is essentially like a tomato essence soup done really well. It's incredible, but it's so complicated for a home cook to, you know, you got to hang and filter and all this stuff, all to be left with pretty much a clear liquid that tastes like tomatoes, <laughs> right? And it would be seen as like a worthwhile pursuit. So I think that's the good part too, that we've kind of become more honest and down to earth about our cooking as well, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm not 100% sure 
Like I think the cooking culture thing, it's probably become more universal, right? So whereas I think working mums, it was a little bit kind of just, we just got to get dinner on the table sort of thing. Yeah. And that's where I think some of the shortcuts came in, into, like, I mean, out of practicality. and, and, and But you also couldn't back it, in the day buy a rotisserie chicken for like five bucks. Like you can't. Yeah, I mean, you didn't have Uber Eats, right? <laughs> you, didn't, you couldn't just like go on your phone and like order dinner for the whole family. You had to defrost That's... that meat, baby. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about an area where, you know, the the man of the house, you know, has, has traditionally had a very important role is the, the barbecue. And I think this is just one of these things where I think um, Australia, Australians, like, you know, Australian culture, like, I think we pride ourselves on the barbecue. Like, you would even have Australians who would, for some reason, like, under uh, utter, like, false apprehension that we have, like, one of the, the best, best barbecue yeah. cultures in the world <laughs> without realizing that we actually have probably the worst barbecue <laughs> oh, culture come on, in the world. Not the worst. Oh, well, I, I mean, there are lots of countries that don't have a barbecue culture at all, but, like, those that do have a barbecue culture, like, come on, like. <laughs> yeah. Look, maybe we just have <laughs> like, the... I mean, okay, don't get me wrong. Like, I I do enjoy the sausage on a white, like, on a shitty piece of white bread and barbecue sauce with onions at Bunnings or whatever, that somehow all of those ingredients come together and actually is really good. Like, I do enjoy that. But that if that's like as good as it gets, but like come on, like look at other countries, like they they have such they they're doing yeah. shit with their barbecues, right? Like they're not just putting you know meat on a gas grill unseasoned and without any kind of other shit going on. Maybe it's just that we have the best backyards. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> I, I think, it, but I'm not kidding though. I think the idea of the Australian barbecue is the the experience of it. So this is something that they've got right, where it's like the experience of people being outside in the backyard. You've got kids running in the background, maybe even a pool going or like a sprinkler. You've got mates, the men around the barbecue, bonding, beers in hand, not taking themselves too seriously. In fact, I think it's like the burnt sausage is like one of the, the happy kind of tropes of it because it means that you don't, you're not pretentious. You don't care that the sausage is being burnt because you're having a conversation with your mate over a beer. You know? well, I think one thing that is very unique about Australian barbecue culture is the, like, in the park, the public barbecue oh, yeah. in the park. The and scrape on down, these, I can hear it right now. <laughs> these griddles that are sort of lukewarm that barely cook the meat and that you whack them on yeah. and they're like, they take like 20 minutes. Burns to on the outside, raw on the inside. On that note, yeah. though, Andy, like, isn't it so strange when it comes to park barbecues that they still manage to burn the food, but it's raw on the inside when it comes to chicken? But as soon as they try to cook a steak, it's the opposite. The whole thing is just fucking cindered. How does that work? How is the chicken always raw and burnt on the outside, but the you think those conditions would be perfect for cooking a steak, but it never works out that way. I think that's probably, I don't know if it's necessarily this burnt or it's just collecting all of the like the the dirt and previous like, you know, <laughs> stuff from, but okay. So a, a, a quintessential boomer barbecue is, it, first of all, it's like the, ga the gas barbecue, I think has done yeah, a lot of bad guilty. things for like, it's almost the equivalent of the microwave, yeah. right? It's um, taken a lot of the magic, genuine what a barbecue actually is. So um, that's the first part of it. And then the second part of it, I guess, is just not exploring things other than just cooking a steak, <laughs> right? 
You, you know what it is, though, Andy. They're on to. They were on the right track because if you extend that out and you add in the quality and the technique, you have modern Australian. Modern Australian is the barbecue done right with the right amount of seasoning, incredible produce that sings through, and is all about you know the purity of the food. When you take that, you scale that down to middle class, you're getting crappy backpack sausages and supermarket steaks that are thinner than your credit card. <clears throat> All that you're left with is blandness. Yes, the steak is shining through because you haven't seasoned it. There's nothing else to to kind of shine. Like and and this under seasoning, this this um this fear of salt is what really does it for me, right? Like I think that somewhere along the way, Australians have thought that putting salt on their food is gonna kill their family. Or it's gonna you know, your blood pressure is going to go through the roof and you're going to keel over. And so they don't season their meat. Do you find that? Okay. So seasoning, putting that to one side, because I'm sure there's like a ver- like a variation of um, of different but the, approaches. The irony though is like you, you don't season the meat and then when it comes off and you serve it on the plate, they cover it in salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Isn't that weird? It's so um, Do you know, I'm going to put a slightly different spin on your, se- on your anti-seasoning comment and say it's more that a st- Australians don't understand the purpose of seasoning. So I think Australians un- like think the purpose of seasoning is to make it salty because salt is, is it tastes good, right? It's like everyone loves a bit of salt, right? And so I'll, I'll season it like, what does it matter if I season it? I mean, we, we may as well not put salt on the steak because like then, you know, p- people can have different preferences, can do it themselves after it's cooked, right? And I think that's, that's the mindset. Yeah. Whereas, no, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. What we're talking about is actually like a dry brine, right, to make the meat Andy, tender. <laughs> I, seriously, Andy, you just blew people's mind right there. <laughs> I 100% guarantee that is exactly what's going on. It's like I put salt on the meat to make it salty. And if you, and it's kind of like almost like, you know, when you get raw salad leaves and, and leave the dressing out so people can add their own olive oil. That's how they think of it. And I think you literally just blew their mind. It's like adding salt to meat before you cook it is not about how salty the meat is going to be <laughs> when it's on the plate. But see what I mean? No one taught you that. Like your, your dad didn't sit you down and say, son, look, you know, you do this to bring the moisture out so you get a bit of sear and this is how you, you found some kind of want in your life to find out that information so that you could cook a, a better steak. So that's what I mean about the, the kind of, you know, the cooking culture. Well, the thing you've got to remember, Roger, is um, I'm a vegan, so I I, I tend to um, brine my um, you always want what you can't mushrooms have. and my, <laughs> my tofu. Let's move from barbecues. I do want to touch on maybe I'm not sure if like corporate lunch culture is the right framing, but the lunch at work or work lunch kind of thing, right? Yeah. I don't mean like the lunch when you go out with your colleagues on a special occasion. I mean like this is the, the everyday the meeting, the planning day lunch, or. No, no, I mean just like the lunch every day, right? The, the Monday box. to Friday lunch. So I think what's changed is I remember growing up, the concept of like a food court in a shopping center, that was like a, that was a no-go. That was just a place we didn't visit. There was no sense that like you just pick up some lunch like when you're doing your thing, right? Mm. Certainly don't pay for your lunch. Like lunches was always a thing that you either have at home or you you pack and bring yeah, with you. Literally right? a pack lunch. And it, it was never like, oh, we'll just, we're at the shops, we'll just get something, we'll get a bite to eat quick, you know, cheap and cheerful bite here. And of course, in, in the workplace, this, the same is true, right? It's, you bring a sandwich, right? You don't, you don't buy your lunch. And funnily enough, now I'm on my one meal a day diet. 
I think I'm kind of like coming full circle. I'm not bringing a lunch, but I'm not buying a lunch. And I actually kind of like the idea, right, of just not buying a lunch. But nonetheless, yeah, just like the monotony of the um, the ham sandwich with um, my some um, wilted lettuce and uh, margarine, right? My uncle, rest in peace, he's famous for having eaten two sandwiches every day for his whole career at the same company. That's like over 40 years. And these two sandwiches were two slices, comprised of two slices of Wonder White bread and two slices of Kraft Singles. And he ate that every day for lunch for 40 years. Wow. I mean, that's that's the equivalent of the the Special K and the Wheat Bix, right? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And yeah, just like became a staple, just became part of the routine. So I just don't know, like, okay, so the monotony of... Now, you've presented that as almost like a a famous for this thing, but, like, I can tell you there's a lot of other boomer Australians that did something very similar. Maybe they they switched it, like, up every now and then, but, like, (laughs) it was not dissimilar, right? Yeah. I'm always surprised, though, at how the love affair of the sandwich keeps on going strong, right? And... I remember in my corporate life this idea of like, because I always had a very bad relationship with sandwiches, especially homemade sandwiches, because going to school you had these terrible ones, right? Um, And when it got to work, it's like, why would you want sandwiches? But when you looked at food courts, corporate food courts and and ones in the city, the sandwich bars would always be some of the most popular. And you'd have literally like, you know, like the COO would come down to the sandwich bar and ask the the ladies that work there to kind of make him up his, his sandwich. And he'd like order it and then make it and like wrap it. And it was like, it was a thing, you know? And I just like, yeah, I just don't get it. It's just like a really shitty burger. It's like a really shitty cold burger. Um, But people have this enduring love affair with it. And this is where, this is the kind of the home run for boomer food, right? This is where we're heading to. This is the, the Mecca, like, you know, in the Middle East. It's the ham sandwich, man. It's like, it's, we talked about programming before when it comes to food. I I know deep down that like when a boomer has lunch and they get out that bread roll, you know, if they're fancy or the white bread, if they're not, and they, they, you know, they put the thick lashings of margarine on it and they put just one slice of ham. It's like thin. It's like a a note. It's like a money note. (laughs) And, And they eat that. I know deep down they're like, fuck yeah fuck yeah, I'm like a healthy man. I'm going to live to like a ripe old age, right? Like, Because they see that as something, um, it's the intersection between frugality, reliability, and health. Like they see it as like this really virtuous, money-saving, healthy meal. And they, they honestly believe that, that actually that's like a good thing because it's low in meat, you know, it's like high in, bre- in, in grains and cereal and you meant to, that's meant to be the base of the, the food pyramid, man. And yeah, it's just like this reliable friend they can come back to. And like, you know, I've literally like the ham sandwich is and, you know, throwing a bit of cucumber, a garden tomato in there and you're sweet, right? Like that's just like, it's the, it's the old friend waiting for them at the end of the day. Riffing on the, uh, on this and the, some of the examples you brought before. So like the, the fundamental difference, I think, between the generations is about variety. It's about pushing the envelope to get something better and different and being will- willing to try something different to get there. And I think in the context of breakfast, it's saying 
no to like wheat bix every morning. It's saying no to the ham sandwich every day for lunch. Yeah. And it's saying no to we're going to have Thai every time we need to go out to a restaurant because they're, they're really good and it's a BYO. Why wouldn't we go back, right? We want to try something different and we want to push it until we get to the next horizon of greatness, right? Which is why we'll pay, you know, two, three, well, maybe not 300 bucks, but two, like paying 200 bucks for a good yeah. quality high-end restaurant is not out of the out of this world for us right as as a younger generation trying to trying to experience like everything that's that's on offer and i think when it comes to food if we had a different attitude a different mindset maybe we would be happy like maybe we, we, it's possible like to the whole like will comment from the rsl club like being pretentious like you don't like you don't have to you don't have to pursue like this food is just one thing, right? Yeah. Um, you can pursue greatness in like other domains, like music or art or whatever. But we've done it. We, we, I think we're more likely to do it with food and cooking and all that stuff, right? We've talked about what's wrong with the microwave? It bloody heats the food, gets rid of the like <laughs> bacteria. Like, what else do you want, right? Yeah. And I think that's the fundamental difference. Yeah, it's it's, it's well said. You know, I think um, we have spoken about, like, is modern food culture affecting our ability to enjoy simple things? You know, like, the just like a simple thing, just enjoying it for what it is, right? And, you know, like, I thought a little bit about Will's comment around pretentiousness. And I think that, like, yes, I am pretentious around food. I like, and I think it's because I like meeting people who are passionate about things. And when you see someone who's really obsessed with food, they're passionate about it and that makes them interesting, right? And I like that part of it. But then I also know that I love the top shelf and the bottom shelf. I love fast food. I love I love chips. I love junk. I love simple things as well, right? Like I just don't hold them up as some kind of virtuous thing, you know? Like I don't think that eating – and actually I don't believe eating wheat bix every day is good for you, right? So – it's just a different attitude, I think, and it's reinforced by our own version of food marketing, right? Like through Instagram, through social media, seeing like when you see your friends go up to a restaurant and like an omakase and all this kind of stuff, you're like, hell yeah, that those people are like living, living it up. And I kind of want to do that. So I think it's like our own version of that, right? The, this idea that you should be, no matter what your economic circumstance is, you should be eating like incredible meals. So I think it's a bit of that as well. Yeah, and, and we could do a whole other episode on other boomer-related topics, but there's some like parallels here with other things, like let's say boomer travel, right? Where where do boomers? How do boomers travel when they go on holidays, right? Oh yeah, we'll go to like the motel, like that we always go to because like, hey, they're good value and they've got those cereal boxes that we like, and it's you know it's good, like it's reliable. Why would we go somewhere else? Why? Like what? Why? What's the point? Why would we stay in a hotel? Like, it's too expensive. And, yeah, I think so there's some just fundamental differences. And um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of ragging that happens on boomers, including, like, what we've done to, today in this episode. But um, I think, like, especially when we hear, the like, the economic-related ones, like housing, all that sort of stuff, and these different attitudes, like, they are born out of a different upbringing, a different... I mean, they had more challenging circumstances to grapple with when they were um 
either growing up as children in you know post-war households or even as um, parents themselves in yeah in a, in a more challenging economic environment. Yeah, definitely. Don't want to get into to my mum's story around food or depression. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's uh, that's about it. So, sorry, mum and dad.